The destinations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Umpqua, Tekelma, Teloa Deni, Karuk, Yurok, and Wintu peoples. Oregon is a state full of beautiful vistas. Mount Hood from the Portland Rose Garden, the Alvord Desert from Steens Mountain, Hasita Head from Sea Lion Caves. One of my favorites is the view from atop a tiny national monument in the southwest corner of the state. Like so many viewpoints in Oregon, it looks out over mountains covered in conifer forests, in this case the Klamath Mountains. The view is fantastic in and of itself, but it's the reveal that makes it really stunning. Nothing makes an already spectacular vista seem even more luminous than encountering it after an hour and a half in darkness, which is how much time you'll be spending underground if you take the ranger-led tour of Oregon Caves. Through pure luck, I took one of these tours a few years ago that emerged from the cave just as the sun was beginning to set, bathing the landscape in warm, low-angle light. It was and is one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen, but at the time, I wasn't aware of what really made the mountains and forests around me special. I've used terms like lush, rich in life, and above all, diverse, to describe northwest conifer forests throughout this series, but none of these forests can hold a candle to those of the Klamaths and the adjacent Siskiyous of southern Oregon and northern California. You'd have to travel to the pine woodlands of the southeast U.S., or cross the Pacific to Siberia or China, to find coniferous forests that support anywhere near the same diversity of organisms. Conifers are an especially important part of this diversity. Thirty species live here, more than in any other temperate forest in the world. In some areas, as many as 17 of these species can be found growing together, and seven Klamath Siskiyou species are endemic, meaning that they are found nowhere else on Earth. These diverse forests support an equally diverse community of invertebrates, fish, amphibians, mammals, fungi, and all the other organisms that depend on and interact with conifers. The engine behind this profusion of life is the patchwork of environments that exist here. If you were to walk through many of the forests covered in this series, you could hike for days without seeing a major change in the vegetation. In the Klamaths and Siskiyous, though, you could pass through several very different environments on a day hike. Each of these environments is home to conifers and other species that have adapted to the particular conditions that exist there, and in many cases would not survive even in neighboring ecosystems. This crazy quilt of specialized microenvironments and the organisms that live in them is why you can pack so much life into a small corner of the Northwest. But why does such variety exist in the first place? There are three main answers to this question, one of which should be very familiar by this point in the series. The first reason that environments vary so much across the Klamaths and Siskiyous is that climate also varies across the region. The mountains reach nearly down to the Pacific Ocean, and in these lowland areas they receive huge amounts of water, both as rain and as fog, supporting dense forests of Douglas fir and Port Orford cedar, one of the area's endemics. Just as in so many other cases throughout the Northwest, these coastal mountains wring moisture out of the air and as you head inland, you move into a rain shadow, with some open forests of ponderosa pine and other dryland species. In places, 
These forests thin out even further into savannas that would look at home on the shores of the Mediterranean. It's no coincidence that the vineyards around Roseburg, Oregon are famous for growing Spanish wines. As anyone who's tried a holiday drive between the Northwest and California over Interstate 5's high point at Siskiyou Summit can tell you, the highest peaks of these mountains can be a snowy wonderland or an icy nightmare, depending on your opinion of winter weather. Not surprisingly, the conifers here look like the ones you'd see at high elevations in the Cascades or Rockies. Climate, and its interaction with the Klamaths and Siskiyous themselves, plays a huge role in determining what lives where. But this is true elsewhere in the region as well, and nowhere else do we see the same environmental variation. So what's different here from, say, the Ochikos or the Wallawas? The answer is underfoot, and Oregon Caves is a great place to delve into it. Most of the world's caves have walls of limestone, a common rock that forms from calcium carbonate deposited by marine organisms. Calcium carbonate dissolves easily, meaning that groundwater can carve it into twisting passages. When that water evaporates, it can redeposit the limestone as geological statuary, the most familiar examples of which are ceiling-hugging stalactites and stalagmites rising up from the cave floor. Oregon caves, though, tunnel not through limestone, but through marble. Chemically, the two rocks are fairly similar, and just like limestone, under the right circumstances, marble can be dissolved to form caves. This is because marble is just limestone that's been subjected to high temperature and pressure, which tells us a couple of things about the rocks at Oregon Caves. First, that they began as seafloor sediments in a warm, shallow ocean, the environment in which limestone forms today. Second, that some powerful force smashed them onto the edge of North America, forced them up several hundred feet above sea level, and in the process applied so much pressure that it metamorphosed the rock from limestone into marble. Such metamorphic rocks are common in this part of the Northwest, and the force that formed them all lies just offshore. California's Cape Mendocino sits at the southern end of the Juan de Fuca Plate, a chunk of Earth's crust that parallels the Northwest coast as far north as Vancouver Island. It's moving slowly towards North America, and as it does, it's being forced under the continent. It's this slow but powerful process that makes the region earthquake-prone, and that fuels the Cascade volcanoes. It's also what gives the Klamaths and Siskiyous their unusual geology. As the Juan de Fuca Plate has plowed towards North America, sediments from the deep sea, as well as a few former islands, have collided with the continent and become smooshed onto the landscape like bugs onto a windshield. It's a messy process, and looking at a geological map of the mountains is like looking at an extremely complex and badly assembled jigsaw puzzle. The marble of Oregon Caves formed this way, as did a wide variety of bedrocks across the region. Some of these may weather into soils rich in nutrients that can support lush forests, while others may be much less favorable. The oddest of these is serpentinite, a rock that forms when seafloor lava is subjected to high pressure. It's lacking in nutrients, but it's rich in toxic metals, making it doubly tough for plants to survive on. On both sides of the Oregon-California border, you'll find large patches of soil formed from serpentinite, and it'll come as no surprise that you won't find many conifers, or indeed many plants of any kind growing here.
Klamaths and Siskiyous differ from other Northwest mountains not just in their complex patchwork of rocks, but in their age. The other mountain ranges we've explored in this series are geologically young, with the notable exception of the Blue Mountains, which also form from the agglomeration of oceanic sediments and islands. The Klamaths and Siskiyous are old, especially by Northwest standards, with some rocks dating back 500 million years. In active volcanic ranges like the Cascades, many of the large peaks are growing faster than they can be eroded, giving us such pyramidal peaks as Mount Baker and Mount Hood. The mountains of the Northwest's southwestern corner are not growing anymore, and instead are constantly being worn down by rivers, rain, and wind. This can make for a landscape that is both unstable, California's Eel River is a world-famous natural laboratory for studying landslides, and convoluted, full of deep canyons and steep slopes facing any number of directions. The steepness of slopes can determine which species live there. You're unlikely to get mature, old-growth species growing on a hillside that slides into a river every few decades. The direction a slope faces also makes a big difference. A north-facing slope is shielded from the sun, and thus often supports wetter environments than those on the sun-baked south-facing slopes. This is why Klamath Siskiyou forests grow as a series of diverse clusters rather than as wide swaths. The patchwork of forests is the product of three other complex patchworks, one climatic, one geological, and one topographical that all overlie each other. And as if this weren't complicated enough, there's a fourth factor that shapes regional ecology. Life in these forests changes with time, and while some of these changes might be subtle, Oregon Caves provides evidence of at least one big one. Caves are great places to preserve the remains of Ice Age animals. An animal that dies or whose bones are washed into a cave is likely to be protected from scavengers and to be preserved in the stable underground environment. Many animals boost the odds of preservation even further by making their dens in caves. Bears are particularly fond of doing so. In fact, it was a hunter's dog on the trail of a bear that led to the discovery of Oregon Caves. You can see the bones of an Ice Age bear on the tour, but in 1995 the remains of a much more surprising carnivore were found here, a 39,000-year-old jaguar. Today, this species is found in the tropics of Central and South America, but there are historical records of jaguars as far north as Texas and Arizona, showing that they can do just fine outside of jungles. The conifer forests of southern Oregon, though, are well outside of what anyone had expected for this species. No known wild jaguar, living or fossil, has ever lived further north than the Oregon Caves individual, and its presence in the Klamaths drives home a few points about the region during the last ice age. First, it shows that it was not covered in glaciers, as many high elevation areas of the northwest were. This may be another reason for the high diversity in Klamath and Siskiyou forests. Species living here didn't have to recolonize the landscape after glaciers retreated, and many others may have first moved here when driven out of their range by growing ice sheets. The jaguar is also a great example of just how much life in the Klamath forests has changed in a relatively short period of geologic time, and begs the question of why this big cat doesn't live here anymore. As with so many other animals that disappeared from parts of their ranges, or entirely, at the end of the last ice age, this is a hard question to answer. Two very important things happened at around the same time. Glaciers started to retreat as the climate warmed up, and the first humans crossed into North America from Siberia. 
Did either of these factors lead to the disappearance of the Oregon jaguar and the extinction of animals like mammoths and ground sloths? Did they both contribute? Or was some other cause responsible? These questions remain thorny and unresolved, but one thing that is very clear is that human activity has had a profound impact on the forests of the Klamaths and Siskiyous over the last couple of centuries. Whiskeytown National Recreation Area at the far southern edge of the Klamaths is a testament to the many ways in which our species have affected local forests. Whiskeytown, like so many other towns in Northern California, began as a mining community. The final destination of many of the 49ers passing through San Francisco, it drew gold seekers from across North America and as far away as China. You'll find similar towns throughout the Klamaths and Siskiyous that grew up quickly and haphazardly around mines or the region's other major industry, timber. Both industries involve clearing trees and other vegetation, with mining also delivering the double whammy of toxic mine tailings. Both have had a catastrophic impact on conifers and their forests around the Northwest, but in the Klamaths and Siskiyous, where huge amounts of diversity are condensed in small patches of woodland, and where connections are crucial for allowing organisms to move from patch to patch, they hit especially hard. Beyond mining and logging, a booming population put several other stresses on local forests, including introduced species, domestic animals and crops, and an increasingly large number of roads. In the middle of the 20th century, a new impact emerged, and it's why you can't visit Whiskeytown today. In 1963, John F. Kennedy inaugurated Whiskeytown Dam, which quickly flooded the community for which it was named. The connection between dams and forests may not be immediately obvious, but remember from the second episode of this series that there's a strong link between conifers and salmon. With the construction of the Whiskeytown Dam, and many others like it, salmon and other migratory fish lost access to their spawning grounds, and the forests around them lost a vital source of marine nutrients. Perhaps the biggest impact our species has had, though, is the hardest to observe. This is because it happens on such a huge scale, but it's unfolding around us every day, no matter where you are in the world. Climate changes through time as well as across space, as the fossil plants of the Blue Mountains so clearly show us, and it does so for many natural reasons. Human activity, though, has greatly increased the concentration of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, trapping heat from the sun near Earth's surface, and causing temperatures to rise faster than they have in at least 55 million years. Given time, clear cuts can regrow, and fish will return to spawning streams if they're made accessible. But as we've seen time and again in this series, many conifers require very specific climatic conditions in which to live. Given the breakneck speed and sheer scale of modern climate change, can we even hope to predict how living species will respond over the coming centuries? And more importantly, even if we can make these predictions, can we do anything to act on them? Fortunately, the answer to both these questions is yes. The science of conservation biology sits at the conjunction of many fields, ecology, evolutionary biology, paleontology, geology, chemistry, politics, and education. For all the worst reasons, it's a burgeoning and relevant area of study, but the good news is that it's given us many powerful tools for predicting how organisms will respond to events like climate change. We can, for example, look at the climatic conditions an organism lives in today, 
and where those conditions are likely to exist in a decade or a century to predict how that species' range may shift over that time. These predictions are a mixed bag for conifers. Some, like the sun-loving ponderosa pine, may actually benefit from higher temperatures and expand into new habitats. Others, like the cold-adapted Engelmann spruce, may disappear for most of their range. Still others, like the versatile Douglas fir, may expand into some areas and disappear from others. If the forests of the Klamath and Siskiyous teach us anything, though, it's that climate alone does not determine where species live. A forest on a north-facing slope might fare better in a warming climate than one on a south-facing slope, and you might see very different responses among forests growing upstream and downstream of a salmon-blocking dam on the same river. And what if a species can't shift its range? What happens if an alpine conifer has no more mountain to move up to keep out of hot conditions? And what if seeds from a warming patch of forest can't sprout in cooler regions nearby because the soils there are formed from toxic serpentinite? Those of us that study ecology love it because it's complex, but this same complexity can make prediction difficult. Every year, though, adds new items to the conservation biologist's toolkit, and every new study helps hone the tools that already exist. This is one reason for hope, even in an ecosystem as critically endangered as the Klamath and Siskiyou forests. Another is that people are acting on these predictions. At the end of 2020, an agreement was reached between the governments of Oregon and California, power companies, and the Karuk and Yurok tribes to remove several dams along the Klamath River, allowing salmon to return, along with all their crucial nutrients. Conservation victories like this don't come easy, especially in the Klamath and Siskiyous, where mining and logging remain important to the heritage and identity of the self-styled state of Jefferson. The movement to restore the Klamath River faced a long, uphill climb before its recent success, and similar challenges face anyone acting to protect remaining stands of old-growth forest. But these forests are worth protecting. They too have shaped the region's cultural heritage, particularly for the indigenous people who have lived among them for millennia, but for those with shallower roots here as well. The complex web of connections in the Klamath and Siskiyous means that preserving forests also preserves the animals that live in them, the hillsides that would slide away without their stabilizing root systems, the waterways whose quality they help maintain, and even the climate, which they can moderate by drawing carbon dioxide out of the air during photosynthesis. First and foremost, though, it preserves the trees that define our region. For a month out of the year, conifers matter to families across the globe, but in the Northwest, they're far more than Christmas trees. They inspire us, they form the basis of our economy, and they make the diversity of life that peaks in the Klamath and Siskiyous possible, all while being some of the most impressive and complex plants ever to have evolved. Thanks for joining me on this month-long journey through the Northwest and its conifer forests. I've loved being able to delve into the ecology and culture of my home and favorite corner of the world, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this series as much as I've enjoyed making it. As always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, head on over to the Voyages website at voyagepod.wordpress.com, where you can also find more information on the destinations visited over the course of the holiday special, and on the music accompanying each episode. I've got a great topic in mind for next year's special already, and I can't wait to share it with you all this December. In the meantime, stay tuned for new monthly episodes. 
The new year has gotten off to a less than spectacular start, but never forget that the world is an amazing place full of amazing places, each with its own story to tell. With COVID-19 vaccinations already taking place, there's great reason to hope that we'll all be able to explore more of these places and stories this year than in 2020. May your 2021 be full of the best kind of adventure, and I hope you'll join me for all the voyages to come. Thank you.